This week on Raffi Reviews, Raffi Reviews, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Well, I think no matter how different your views on Ant-Man and the Wasp might be, we can all kind of agree this is a movie we kind of needed right now. <laughs> uh, following Infinity War, uh, timeline-wise, this is supposed to be happening a few days before Infinity War, which is why this story is actually happening and the world's not just, like, afraid <laughs> at the moment. Um, but yeah, this movie picks up a little after Civil War, I think it's like two years after Civil War, because that's when the movie came out, but um, uh, apparently Scott's been under house arrest, which we knew from a line in, in uh, Infinity War, and he had to be in house arrest for two years, and then spend like three years on parole, which is just like, I don't know how anyone could be on house arrest for two years. Um, it helps that his family uh, does love him, they're completely on his side, uh, of course his ex-wife his ex-wife's new husband, um, and uh, his daughter Cassie, who plays you know a bit a bit of a role in the film, uh, but he's in he's un, uh, under house arrest because of uh, helping Captain America in Civil War, and it's actually funny how much of the of this film kind of focuses on the aftermath of Civil War, like as if as if we didn't just go see Infinity War, like we're still on the Infinity War backlash, talking about like what everything means now. Um, but Ant-Man and the Wasp is still like, yeah, but Civil War, though, guys, that was, that was some gnarly stuff, right? <laughs> um, but it's interesting because the Civil War thing, like, it, it's weird because, like, you see Ant-Man in Civil War, and it's such, like, a, well, of course kind of thing. You're watching it, and you're like, all right, they're gonna have a big superhero battle, they're gonna get, you know, whatever superheroes they know, Ant-Man knows the Falcon, Falcon knows Captain America, so of course Ant-Man's here in this fight. But much like, uh, what's another movie that kind of had some Civil War backlash? Uh, I guess Spider-Man in a small way. But th this movie is just like, like, two of the biggest parts of the plot, narratively speaking, come from what happened in Civil War. And all Ant-Man did was go there and, like, punch some people. <laughs> and, like, grow giant and stuff. Um, but because of that, and because he got locked up, and Captain America broke him out, but he did say, like, he'd go under house arrest or whatever. Like, he made a deal with the FBI. Um, he, he's, he's, he's being punished for it, and so he's, he's, he's arrested and everything. Um, which, which works really well, too, because I remember after seeing Civil War and knowing Ant-Man 2 was going to happen, I was concerned because I thought, you know, had this been a more cynical director, Ant-Man would have gone back to kind of being a criminal on the run. And, like, all the work he did in the first Ant-Man movie to go from a criminal to a hero would be undermined by his family and by his friends and by the government because of what he did in Civil War. And gladly, that's not the way they go with it. Um, the other thing that happens because of Civil War is that Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne are on the run from the government because, you know, knowing that this guy, Scott Lang, got a suit and knowing that S.H.I.E.L.D. had once employed an Ant-Man and Wasp, uh, this tips off the government that Hank and, and his daughter are operating in sciences they shouldn't be allowed to operate in. 
uh, I think I think that since the seventies he hasn't supposed to he he hasn't supposed to have to ah since the nineteen seventies he hasn't been allowed to operate with any Ant Man technology or whatever, um, and and I guess that kind of works in the Sokovia Accords too, because yes, Ant Man would count as a superpowered individual. But the thing that gives him his superpowers is something provided by the scientist who we knew was like the old Ant-Man. So, so yeah, again, and because of that, because they're on the run, because of what Ant-Man did in Germany, um, Hank and, and, and Hope have a real stick up their ass for Scott. Like, they, they, they're really mad at him. Um, which, you know, I mean, of all the things in the film to kind of start off with, I kind of wish that they didn't drag that out. You know, the... Because Hank and Hope have, like, this new grudge against Scott for outing them and getting them, you know, under the radar of the government. And now they have to move around constantly to accomplish their mission. Uh, and, and they, you know, the only reason they're keeping Scott around now is because he might be able to help them with their mission. And their mission is to explore the quantum realm and to find Hope's uh, mother, Janet Van Dyne. Uh, and, of course, they know she's alive or at least they think she's alive because Scott went into the quantum realm in the first movie and still managed to come back. And the quantum realm itself is like, it's interesting because in the last movie they kind of mention it as this thing you don't want to do, and they don't really explain it or talk about it too much. You, you get a full scene of Ant-Man going into it and then coming back, um, but they don't fully explain it there. This movie seeks to like explore it further. It almost it's, it's almost as if like, the first movie was about the science of growing and shrinking, and this sequel movie is about the science of the quantum realm and how it affects things. Uh, and apparently it affects things on multiple scales that we didn't know. Um, so yeah, the, the mission from... Well, it, it really feels kind of like... <laughs> I hate saying this, because I don't want to undermine Ant-Man, because I love Ant-Man. Uh, he's like the underdog of the MCU. This really feels like a Wasp movie. Like, it really feels like the Wasp and Ant-Man... <laughs> Uh, if you literally cut out all the scenes of Ant-Man dealing with his home life, you would have a pretty solid Wasp movie. Uh, but we'll talk about her in a bit. But, like, I mean, all in all, it, it's a good movie. And I'll talk about, more about how I have general feelings about it till the, at the end. Um, but now I'm just going to go into that traditional thing where I talk about characters individually. And me talking about characters opens up different opinions I have on parts of the film. That's, that's usually my structure. Now, of course, we have Paul Rudd. That's Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about him. He's I liked him a lot in the first Ant-Man movie. I liked him a lot in Civil War. I liked him a lot in this. He, again, because Paul Rudd isn't, like, the face of a superhero, seeing him be a superhero is just so entertaining because he's reacting to it the same way we would. Like, he plays it cool for the most part, but, like, it's just interesting. It's it's interesting to see Paul Rudd be a superhero when you when you've seen him as more like a comedy character or a comedy actor for most of his career, um, and I dig it. You know, I, I remember the first time uh, they announced that Paul Rudd was gonna be Ant Man. A lot of people were kind of confused by that. I I can't say I was as confused. I was just more like I was waiting to be impressed because I knew because I knew by that point by the first Ant Man movie. It's Marvel. It's probably going to be good. Um, I didn't have any doubts on how Paul Rudd would lead, but I was just curious to see how they would portray him. And I'm, I'm glad that they they kept a lot of the humor of Ant-Man 
uh, in this film as well. One of the things I really love about Scott in this movie is that you get more of a chance to see him as a dad. Um, the fact that he's been under house arrest for two years has given him a lot of time to kind of, like, learn stuff. Like, when you first see him in the movie, he set he sets up this, like, cardboard maze throughout the attic of his house, and it, it goes down, like, a slide that goes down, like, the stairs, and then out into the lawn. Like, he's turned his house into, like, a little playset for him and Cass, um... And it's adorable. I love everything. I love everything with with, with Scott and his daughter because it feels so genuine. Um, I really I don't know who played the little girl that plays Cassie. I'm actually on the the wiki right now. Oh, here we go. Abby Ryder Fortson. Uh, how old is she supposed to be in this film? All right, so she's she's ten. Okay, she's really good. Like, like I I don't know much about child actors or actresses, but like. It's very... They have a great chemistry. A great father-daughter chemistry. Um, there, there was like... I, I hate admitting this too. But there was a moment where I almost teared up a little bit. And it was like... Towards the latter half of the movie where Cassie gave him like the motivation to go out and help uh, Hank and Hope again. But uh, that was really good. And again, I just love seeing him as a dad. I love seeing uh, Scott Lang like learn new tricks because he spent so much time alone. Like he knows like... Uh, close-up magic tricks <laughs> like that's a great little plot in the movie um i remember when i first saw it i was thinking to myself like, all right where when's this joke gonna pay off and it kind of does later but not in the way you expect but i i, I buy it I'm, I'm okay with it um but of course you know one of the things that ant-man is bringing into this movie that he didn't have in the first movie is the fact that he can go giant now that he can make himself into giant man they actually do name drop giant man uh, a little bit uh and, like, they also, like, I kind of wish they went more into detail about this, but they do establish that Hank Pym had researched using Pym particles to make people giant. Um, and I guess we'll talk about that more when we get to, uh, when we get to Bill Foster. But, like, you know, every, now they're, they're working with, obviously, shrinking and growing a lot more. And, and I guess that's one of the things about the film that is kind of, like, perplexing me. It's kind of hard to talk about because I'm trying to remember it, but, like, I only saw this movie a few days ago, and there aren't as iconic shrinking, growing scenes of, like, objects in this movie as there are in the first one. I think because, like, the trailers for Ant-Man and the Wasp showed off a lot of the major growing shrinking scenes, like the Hello Kitty Pez dispenser and uh, the salt shaker. Uh, the Hot Wheels cars thing is, I, I actually love that bit. Um, essentially to get around, Hank and Hope cycle through multiple cars in a Hot Wheels set. And of course, because these cars aren't actual toys, they're like, they're like actual cars that were shrunk. Um, they just have like a Hot Wheels set and they just open it up and they pull out a car and they drive around in that. And that's, and that's helpful because they're trying to stay, um, under the radar. So if they keep switching cars, they won't be tracked. Um, so that's pretty neat. They, they do some, they do some cool stuff with the growing and shrinking. There's actually like, um, you, you also see, like, the, the building that Hank is using as a lab in the trailers, and they shrink it down to, like, a suitcase size, and the whole, the, the first time I saw them, like, that's kind of a horrible idea, <laughs> only because if you drop that or break that small building, um, all, all your, your entire lab is, like, fucked, it's gone. Now, that being said, like, they, 
they're really fast and loose about objects retaining their mass, so maybe it wouldn't break upon contact. The same way, like, if I punched a building, it's not going to break. Maybe it being small and I punch it, it still won't break. Not not talked about, not confirmed or denied. <laughs> um, but it, it, at, the time, at the same time, it's pretty smart, I guess, to carry around your lab with you. I just wish they did it in kind of a different area. Like, a smaller building would be great. Like, something less conspicuous than a building that is there and then isn't the next day. Like, that's, that seems like one of those things where Hank would probably not do that. I know it's hiding in plain sight, but if I'm living, like, across the street from this building and <laughs> I look over the next day and it's gone, I'm probably going to be suspicious because I don't remember them taking that building down. Um, but regardless, you know, they, they do do a lot of cool shrinking mechanics and growing mechanics, especially, like, with the car chase scenes later on, that's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it just sucks because, like, I, I guess what it is, like, in the first movie, that kind of stuff seems so new and iconic. It's easy to remember those scenes of growing and shrinking. But uh, in this movie, because you're used to it, because you're used to the shrinking and growing, it just feels so natural and so fluid that you don't focus as much on it, and so you don't remember every bit and piece of growing and shrinking in the movie. That's my justification for it. I don't think it's a, a matter of, like, writers being uncreative. I just think, you know, I know Ant-Man enough now to be like, oh, well, of course he shrinks that thing so he can do this over there. Like, that's that's natural. Um, and, and again, it, it doesn't help that a lot of those scenes were spoiled in trailers. Um, one of my favorite bits was when Wasp grows small to fight some dudes, and she, like, they, they ruined so many of those scenes in the trailers because... There's the scene of her running along those knives that are being thrown at her. Uh, there's the bit with the salt shaker again. Um, there's a bit where she's breaking into a car to beat up some thugs, and she, like, breaks through the window and then shrinks. Like, it's it's really cool, but I've already seen it because of the trailers. <laughs> in fact, most of the movie that I hadn't seen in trailers were scenes that didn't involve action or growing and shrinking. And, and that, that seems like a problem. If you don't have enough fodder for your trailers, and, and then your movie feels like, oh, well, I've seen all this before. So that, that, I guess that's kind of a, a problem with the film. But, like, go back to Scott for a minute. He's good. He, he's a fine character. Like, I could, see it, I could see someone being easily annoyed by Scott's, like, side plot of, like, having to be home for the FBI, and, like, oh, the FBI are coming to check on me, I gotta, I gotta get home before it's too late, like, it feels very, like, um, it feels very Ferris Bueller, in a way, like, uh, <laughs> like, he, he has to be somewhere, but he has to be there now, and he's, it also feels kind of Spider-Man-ish, too, because he has to leave his superhero responsibilities to deal with his human responsibilities, um, and they kind of clash together. It, it also kind of sucks, because Hope and Hank, give Scott, like, the bullshit, um, because he has to go handle his FBI stuff, um, and they, 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 they shun him for it, and it's like, dude, like, <laughs> Hank Pym's a genius, and, and Hope is supposedly in love with Scott, even though no one says it, like, cut, like, get the guy a break, like, he, he's trying to help you, but he also has his own life and responsibilities to, to take care of, um, but yeah, that was, that was annoying, they really see Scott as kind of a fuck-up, and, you know, Scott makes mistakes, but I think because he's so, like, not boyish, but, like, optimistic, that the mistakes he makes, 
it doesn't make us hate him. It makes everyone else hate him in the movie. That That's kind of how I viewed it, really. Um, but, of course, it's not called Ant-Man 2. It's called Ant-Man and the Wasp. So let's, let's talk about uh, Evelyn, Evelyn, <laughs> Evelyn Lilly. I can't pronounce her first name. As uh, Hope Van Dyne, the Wasp. A character who, in the first one, was actually like created for the movie. I know that in an Elseworlds comic, I think it was the Ultimate Universe, Hank did have a daughter. Um, and I know now in the comics he has a daughter, but it's not like the same kind of character. Uh, but like for, for a unique kind of MCU character, it was really cool to see Hope um, be more active and not just the, the woman of the piece. <laughs> I will say, I like her Ant-Man 1 haircut more than the sequel. The sequel is just generic ponytail. Like, she, she's an attractive actress and everything, but, like, that hairdo in the first movie made her, like, different, made her stand out. But now it's, like, if you took that character and put her in, like, civilian clothes, I wouldn't be able to easily discern, like, oh, that's, that's, that's Wasp. <laughs> um, despite that, despite her hair problem that I seem to be fixated on, um, Wasp was a lot of fun. It, again, it really felt like Wasp was kind of the leading person of the film, what I really appreciate about Wasp in this movie is that they didn't feel the need to go, like, generic, like, female protagonist character, where it's like, oh, well, we don't have to work on this person's characteristics. She's a woman, and she's a superhero, and that should be enough. Like, the movie, the movie doesn't focus on or bring up the fact that she is both a woman and a costume-wearing superhero. And, like, like, none of the Marvel movies really do that anyway, but, like, 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 with Black Widow, for example, she's been in enough movies now where we can see her as this three-dimensional character with a path, with pathos and, like, a past and things she wants in the future. Like, we know her pretty well, but we only know her pretty well because she's been in all these movies. This is only the second movie we've seen the Wasp in, or at least Hope Van Dyne in, and... You know, already we get the same kind of catch-up. We get the same, the same kind of um, detail on her character. And I think that's really impressive. Um, there are moments in this film where, like, the Wasp is angry. There are moments where the Wasp is happy. There are moments where the Wasp cries. And I think that's very important because she's not crying over a man by that point. She's crying over, like, seeing her mother again. Like, they do a very good job at making a three-dimensional character out of, the, again, a female superhero when... They could have easily, just like any other movie studio, been like, well, it's a woman superhero, so you have to like it, right? Um, it, they're not like Sony, where they're just announcing things that are female characters, just because they know female characters are a big deal. Um, I'm getting off topic, because I'm talking about Sony. <laughs> um, but no, she's really great. Her action sequences are really awesome. Uh, she's a lot more, like, dynamic and brutal than Ant-Man. Uh... That being said, though, like, <laughs> Ant-Man doesn't feel unwelcomed in this movie. A lot of the comedy comes from Ant-Man. Uh, and a lot of, like, the kind of relatability comes from him. Because we can't all be Wasp, you know? Because Hope Van Dyne is still a genius. Her, her father is still Hank Pym's, like, scientist supreme. But, like, most of us can be Ant-Man. And if you're, like, about Paul Rudd's, like, age and your life kind of is the same as Scott Lang's, you might just be like him. <laughs> like, there are a lot of men out there who have ex-wives, and, like, 
children that they get on weekends. So you, you can be Ant-Man pretty easily. I don't think you want to be. I mean, not power-wise. His powers are pretty great. But I'm saying you don't want to be in the position that Scott Lang is in. Uh, but we can't all be the Wasp. And I think there's a nice balance between a realistic character and a character we could never aspire to be like. Um, so she does her job pretty well. And again, and again, the, the movie feels well-balanced in here's the stuff that's happening with Scott. Here's how Scott feels. He, here's, like, his life and his reaction to everything. And then here's, like, the Wasp and her mission and how far she's willing to go. And, it, again, it's a nice balance between two characters who have very different uh, ways of handling problems and very different ways of behaving, I guess. Um, we'll touch on a, on a funny character that'll take less time to talk about real quick. Uh, Michael Pena as Louise, uh, Scott Lang's best friend, uh, another former criminal character. It, he <laughs> He's the funny guy from the, from the first one. He, Louise kind of created, and I, I don't know, I feel like maybe they did this before, but Louise created this character archetype in the, in the, in the MCU of best friend who is funny and has the best quotes. Because <laughs> you got Louise, you got Ned from Spider-Man Homecoming, and you got Korg from Thor Ragnarok. Like, those three characters all fill the same role of, like, minor character who, like, helps in the main plot, is the best, is, like, the best friend of the main superhero, um, and is very quotable. And when you walk out of the theater, all the memes you see about this movie are gonna be about that guy. Not so much Ned. I feel like Ned got less of that treatment. But Louise, Louise started it all, man. And he continues to be a great character in this. Uh, at this point, Louise and the other two criminals, I don't, <laughs> I think it's, like, uh, Harris and, uh, Kurt, yeah, uh, the two of them, Louise and Scott, start up a security company called XCon, which is obviously a joke about ex-convicts, um, and they're setting up security because, you know, they're used to breaking into houses. That idea was taken straight from, um, Nick Spencer's Ant-Man run, which we did a comic buffet episode on not too long ago, so you can go check that out. Uh, Louise is funny. You know, he, he does the same role he did before. At the same time, though, you, you do get this feeling of Louise, like, not necessarily growing or developing, but you definitely see him more stressed out in this film. Because he's, like, the president of their company, and so he feels the pressure of keeping their company afloat and, like, doing business deals and, and making plans. And it's just funny to see this character, who's just the comedic best friend, have to take on this leadership role and all the pressure that comes with it. Um, and there's a lot of great bits with him and the security crew and, like, their office and, like, <laughs> like Scott's desk is really cheap, but they can get, like, expensive, like, uh, danishes for breakfast. <laughs> but there's oatmeal, so we got that. Like, there's a lot of little jokes there that um, I think help give the movie some character. There's also, like, obviously in the first movie you had, like, two uh, Louise bits where he would recap a situation. <laughs> uh, and those were like, those are like some really good parts of the first movie. You get another Louise recap in this film and you only get one, but at the same time, I think it's like the best recap of the three that we have thus far. Um, I think it's the best because Louise's recap is actually like, like has a function and it's actually used cleverly. So, one of the villains of the movie injects Louise with a truth serum to find out where Scott Lang is. 
and Louise can't lie to him. So instead, Louise tells this guy where Scott is, emotionally speaking. So Louise goes, I mean, I think it's on YouTube, but Louise goes into this whole, um, like, story update of, like, meeting Scott in prison, and, like, Scott talking to him about his love life, like, his ex-wife divorcing him and stuff, um, Scott, like, ending up with, uh, with Hope, and, like, them falling in love, and then, and, like, how, and how now, because he's, like, stuck on that two-year, like, um, house arrest, like, he can't be with Hope, and he feels lonely, and he, and he thought he would be with her, but he's not, and, and the criminal is just like, look, man, like, I'm all for a good story, but I want to know where Scott is, and he's like, yeah, I'm telling you where he is, like, emotionally speaking, <laughs> like, it, it helps because it's a funny scene, but it's also Louise, like, outsmarting the criminal, so, I don't know, I really like that scene, uh, let's see, what else, what else we got here, uh, I guess we can talk about that criminal right now, because he, he has a pretty small role, uh, small role, uh, Walton Goggins as Sonny Birch, uh, he, he's a criminal in this movie, he's like, a, I don't want to say a crime boss, but, like, he runs, like, a criminal organization, like, a really small one in L.A., um, he is the one that the, uh, that the Pims have been getting technology from to work on their quantum tunnel, and in return, they give him money, and, uh, he's okay, like, I like his southern charm, <laughs> um, he, he has some pretty good jokes about him, again, the whole true serum thing was a good, was a funny bit, um, he also serves to be, like, punch fodder in this movie, because, you, you've seen, like, the chase scene in trailers and stuff, and that, that mainly involves him and his criminal goons, and it's funny, because, like, the, the actual main villain of this movie is, like, one person who has, like, great powers, but she's not, like, a world-ending threat, uh, whereas Walt, like, whereas Sonny Birch and his criminals are, are more prominent villains, just because, like, they get around more often, and, and they're doing more stuff, uh, and they're fine. Again, I, I, if we didn't have him in the film, there wouldn't be any loss of, like, characters, I think. Like, he, he feels very extra. But at the same point, he creates a situation where you have, like, goons to punch. You know, that's kind of the main thing with any superhero movie. There have to be goons in some, in some sense. Whether they're aliens or clones or robots or something, there has to be goons. And you couldn't really have it be the FBI, because the FBI are more like... Uh, big brother, like, looking down on you, watching what you do. They're more of, like, uh, like a threat in the movie, where, whereas, like, these criminals are obviously, like, villains that have to be fought. The FBI are just, like, are just, like, overseers that Scott has to avoid so that he doesn't get, like, in trouble again. And miraculously, like, spoiling this, but miraculously, Scott doesn't get in trouble by the FBI throughout the movie because he's pulling off all these shenanigans that trick them and, you know, fool them into seeing, like, oh, I guess he's not here, we'll, we'll, we'll let him off the hook, because he wasn't here, guys, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just his costume, that's all, it's, he's not here at all, whatever, like, it, it's funny, because they can't, because the FBI can't prove that Scott was out doing all this stuff, but, again, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like something that you'd usually see in a Marvel movie, um, but, like, Sunny Birch is, like, there, you know, I, I see a lot of things, oh god, I see, I've seen a lot of things online where people are like, oh, it should have been Justin Hammer, because, like, he's an established character, and he's funny, and we like him, 
and and he's like the the better part of Iron Man too. And and I'm kind of like, yeah, I guess, but like, how would that work? Cause I, cause Justin Hammer's supposed to be in prison. I guess he could have been released, because that happens to people. Um, that could have also been funny, because then you could establish like, maybe Scott knew Justin Hammer, just like, not knew him personally, but like. They were both in the same jail. That'd be kind of a funny joke. Um, also, again, Justin Hammer works a lot with technology, so he would actually know the stuff that he's giving the Pym family. Uh, and again, he's already an established character, so you don't really have to like boost his profile. We already know who this character is. I don't know. I feel like... Because Ghost, in the comics, was already an Iron Man villain. So... I don't want to kind of adapt too much from Iron Man's books into this Ant-Man movie. Uh, and at the same time, again, it, it wouldn't really make a difference if it was Justin Hammer. The only difference would be like, oh, cool, he's back. Um, I will say, in the first season of Luke Cage, they use Hammer Tech to like fight Luke Cage. And that, that, that's enough for me. Like Just knowing that Hammer Tech is still out in the streets um, satisfies me. I don't need... Justin Hammer to come back again in another movie. Like, I, we, we're done with that. We're done with the Iron Man stuff. Jump over to uh, Hank Pym real quick, played by Michael Douglas. Um, he's here. <laughs> uh, again, he, much like Jan, or much like uh, Hope, he's, you know, got a bit of a grudge against Scott for stuff to happen there. Uh, he does have a lot of, like, blunt funniness about him in this movie, where... He doesn't make a joke. He just says something, like, verbatim. And it's supposed to make things awkward, but also makes things kind of funny. Um, there is a bit where I thought there was going to be a Stan Lee cameo. There's a bit where he's like, um... Hank Pym has to put on a disguise, which is sunglasses and, like, an FBI cap and an FBI uh, jacket. And he kind of looked like Stan Lee in a, in a little bit of a way, just because of the sunglasses and the hat. Um... I was really expecting a scene where he ran into Stanley in the same outfit, and like he like Stanley like takes the ID badge from him or something, whatever. Um, but yeah, he, he's in the movie, you know, and, and and much like much like Hope, you you get the feeling that a lot of a lot of the movie kind of weighs on Hank emotionally because he's looking for his wife in the quantum realm, who he's been separated from for like thirty years, and he doesn't know if he's ever going to find her. So like, there's there's some good emotion in this movie from him. And it's kind of hard to just talk about how much of that uh, is good. And I, I do like it. I, I do like how they kind of flesh out Hank a little bit more in this movie. How, like, telling that telling his daughter that his wife was gone, like, years ago, was, like, the hardest thing he ever had to do. And and he actually he actually does some stuff in this movie for... for for a little bit of it, like, um, he goes into the quantum realm to find Janet, and that's really cool, because, like, he, he's just in a shuttle going in and further and further into the quantum realm, um, and it's really cool, and there's this other bit throughout the movie where, where Hank Pym will actually use giant-sized ants to, like, stop people and, like, to help him out and stuff. He actually goes into his lab, and he's got giant ants helping him. Uh, I really like that bit because... You know, when when you talk about Hank Pym in the comics, you either you're either talking about how he created Ultron, how he has like multiple superhero identities, or how he hit Janet that one time in the '60s. Like those are the three things Hank Pym is known for. 
Um, but there was a period in like the late 70s where Hank Pym wasn't a superhero, but he was still on an Avengers team. And what he would do is he would carry stuff in his pocket and then make it giant size when he'd throw it out. So like, if the Avengers needed transportation, he would throw out like a little jet plane out of his pocket and it would grow into a Quinjet. Or if a lot of people had to be like moved into a certain location, he'd throw out like a little skateboard and make it really giant to ride them all out of the location. Um, and it was pretty funny, you know, that that felt like it, it could have been its own thing. And, and in this film, uh, they kind of reference that with the giant ants and everything. But yeah, Hank Pym's fun. Maybe not fun, but like, <laughs> they definitely give him more to do in this movie, and they definitely give him more emotion and more character in the film, so I really like that. Um, they still have yet to have Hank Pym, like, shrink or grow. Uh, interesting enough, uh, I'm wondering if that's just one of those things where if he did it, it would, like, stop his heart or something. Um, I will say, like, the main villain of this movie isn't necessarily Ghost, it's more like Hank Pym's own ego coming back to bite him. There's a lot of that in this movie, there's a lot of, like, Hank's own ego biting him in the ass, kind of. Um, I guess there's more to talk about that when we get to Bill, but, um, yeah, all in all, Hank Pym is a solid character. Uh, again, there's no indication that his relationship with Janet was violent, so glad they didn't go down that road. Alright, so uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Bill Foster. Uh, kind of the rival to Hank Pym. They have a good kind of like chemistry with each other. Uh, they're kind of like Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs in that way. Uh Again, pretty good character. Um, they actually, when they go to find Bill Foster, it's funny because they, they, Bill Foster is now, like, he used to work with Hank Pym, uh, but they, their work separated and they didn't talk to each other anymore. And then, like, he went off to become, like, a college professor or something. And so Scott and the Pyms go to the college there, and they're all wearing sunglasses and baseball hats. And, like, Scott says it's a terrible disguise. And I love that moment because, like, that's that's Captain America's disguise in, like, Winter Soldier and, like, every other movie. Anytime Captain America has to go, like, underground, he'll do sunglasses and a baseball hat. <laughs> um, but no, Lawrence Fishburne is, like, I guess I expected him to have a stronger role in this movie. Uh, especially because I knew he was playing Bill Foster, a character that was Goliath. Um, and he even admits to working on a project with, with Hank Pym called Project Goliath. And I was really expecting a bit where he would have grown giant and, like, he had his own costume and he and Ant-Man were going to go to blows. Um, but we didn't have that. No, I, I'm kind of disappointed by that. Because um, I like the idea, and they established this in the first movie, I like the idea that in the MCU, Hank Pym was only ever Ant-Man. He didn't, he didn't become Yellow Jacket, he didn't become Goliath, he didn't become Giant Man or the Wasp or anything like that, he, he was just Ant-Man. And so, in the MCU, they take those other titles and they give them to other people. Obviously, the title of the Wasp remained with Janet and with her daughter Hope, um, and Yellow Jacket was the villain identity of, um, what's his name? Oh, what's his name? Darren Cross, in, in the first movie. So, you know, going into this and knowing that Bill Foster, a.k.a. Goliath, was going to be in it, I kind of assumed he was going to actually be Goliath, but he wasn't. 
Um, but I, I guess it's a it's a decent reference. Uh, I, I guess at that point we're kind of out of alternate names. I mean, except for Giant Man, because they name drop Giant Man on the news. But there's no character who becomes a, a Giant Man other than Ant Man. So uh, again, they they fill those names up pretty well. There's still Black Ant though. That's Eric O'Grady. We're not going to talk about him right now. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, Bill's here. Uh, he has a real connection with um, the villain Ghost, whose real name is like Ava, I think. I think. Yeah. No, wait. Hold on. Is it Ava? Sorry, I'm I'm still in the wiki. Uh, yeah, Ava Star. So basically, when we talk about Ava, uh, when she first got her powers as a kid, Bill Foster like took her under his wing and like looked out for her and helped her throughout the years. So he kind of picked up the fatherly role to Ava. Um, and that is going to lead to something that I think would have been interesting, but they didn't do, and we'll talk about that when we get to her. Um, but again, I just kind of wish that Bill had more to do, because even, even when he comes across as, as, as like an antagonist, he only comes across that way because he's trying to help Ava and because he doesn't like Hank. Um, and it's, it's really petty, because, like, again, these two characters are portrayed as, like, rival scientists, but if Hank had, like, portrayed um, Bill on, like, a more obvious level. Because, like, because all that happened is they stopped working together, but other people tried to replicate Hank's work, which resulted in people getting hurt and dying or getting superpowers, and Bill had to, like, clean up the mess. Like, that's one of those things that Hank couldn't help unless he, like, stayed involved. That's just one of those things where you had to put faith in the people that Hank worked with not to replicate his technology. Um, but because they did and they got hurt doing it, we're supposed to believe that Bill has this vendetta against Hank Pym. And, and I honestly don't think that's enough to Hank to, to hate him. Um, but again, you factor in the fact that like Ava got her powers because of science that was trying to be replicated after Hank. It's just way too much in association. Um, and I, I couldn't really get a fix on like what Bill's role in the film was supposed to be. I guess kind of the sage character to Ava, um, but that didn't really feel super necessary. Well, I guess it was necessary, but it wasn't like enough to kind of solidify his place in the film. Like, I didn't walk out of there being like, whoa, Bill Foster was really good in that movie. Um, like, wh when are we going to get him back? Like, he just, he was just kind of there, and in a weird way, he, he ended up just kind of measuring down to like a, a henchman character for Ava. Uh, and even then, like, he, he never, like, throws a punch. I would have liked to see fucking, <laughs> fucking old Lawrence Fishburne, old Michael Douglas, like, just getting a straight-up fist fight. <laughs> that would have been pretty great. Um, but no, for the most part, I I guess I was kind of disappointed with Bill Foster. I, I like that Lawrence Fishburne is now part of the MCU. I'm hoping he shows up in a future movie. Be great to see him go giant. But, again, for what it's worth and for what he is now, uh, he did a decent job at this, and his character was okay. I should probably talk about Janet just a little bit, because she's, she's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, so she, she kind of has to be talked about a little bit. Another person who used to do DC movies, but is now doing Marvel movies. Um, she doesn't show up until, like, the very end. I want to say, like, the last 20 to 15 minutes. Um, and honestly, throughout the film, I was kind of assuming that when they pulled uh, Janet out of the Quantum Realm, she might become a villain. Just because that seemed like the obvious thing to do, like, oh, she's been trapped in the quantum realm for 30 years, of course she's crazy, and 
and now we can get away with her being a villain because she is crazy, but she wants to be good. That was the obvious route. I'm really glad they didn't take it that way. <laughs> it kind of seems like Janet, within the quantum realm, went through a period where she was insane and then just kind of like adapted from that and is better again. Like she's already done the whole crazy villain thing within the quantum realm and now she's okay and she loves her husband her and her daughter again. Um, so again, really glad they didn't do that typical trope of making her crazy to make her a villain. Uh, especially when, like, the last superhero thing she did was Catwoman, who, in that version, was crazy and was a villain, and those two things were correlated. Um, but she also has, like, this power where she can, like, reestablish, like, quantum, um, like, molecular structures. So, like, when Hank goes into the quantum realm to save her, he's starting to, like, come apart, and she, like, reestablishes his molecules. So that's, that's kind of a neat power. Um, but yeah, there's not too much to talk about with her. Like, they save her, and she's back, and everyone's happy. Um, I don't want it to sound like that's stupid, because it's not stupid. It's actually really refreshing to have a movie end with, like, yay, we rescued mom, and, and we're all a family again, and, it's, and, we're, and we're happy. Like, it's, it's really nice to have a movie end like that without it being, like, kind of shitty. Like, oh, we got our mom back, but she's evil. Or we got our mom back, but, like, Hank is dead. Like, they don't do that. I'm glad there's no there's no side effect to saving Janet from the quantum realm. And everyone just gets to be, like, like happy and together again. Like, that that hardly ever happens in any movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, there's really not too much to talk about with Janet. Because, again, she's not in a lot of the movie. Um, I'm interested to see if maybe Michelle Pfeiffer does play a more active role in the third movie. But last but not least, we'll talk about the the villain of the movie, which is uh, Ava Starr, played by Hannah John uh, Hannah John Ka uh, Common. So here's the thing, right? <laughs> uh, I didn't expect Ghost to be a big villain. I I, I also didn't expect her to, to sympathize with her because her whole thing is that her father, uh, Elias Starr. Who, by the way, like, in the comics, that guy is a villain called Egg, uh, Egghead. And, uh, was not expecting a cameo by that character. Um, her father tried to replicate the quantum realm technology that Ant-Man, or, uh, Hank Pym was studying. It blew up into space, and it killed him, his wife, but their daughter Ava, uh, uh, survived, and she got, like, quantum powers. Quantum powers translates to, like, phasing through walls and turning invisible. And I guess she has, like, an enhanced strength, too. Um, well, that just might be working out. But, like, she has ghost powers. And and it sucks because, like, she has cool powers, but she can't control them. So she has to, like, get inside this quarantine room that reestablishes her molecules so she can be solid again. And she's at this constant rate of dying. Like, throughout the years, like, Bill Fox has been looking after her. Um, but... But, but he can never, like, fix her. And now he's gonna, now she's, like, gonna come apart at some point. And so their only solution is to, like, when Janet gets out of the quantum realm, to, like, pull her quantum energies from her to reestablish, like, Ava's body. But doing that might kill Janet. But, like, like Bill cares about that, but Ava doesn't. <laughs> um, but, yeah, for the most part, like, she's... She is kind of sympathetic because you know that she's dying, but you don't feel too bad for her, 
which is kind of fucked up, because, like, the only person in the film that feels bad for her is Bill Foster, because he's been looking after all this time, but, like, when Bill explains to Hank and Scott and, uh, and Hope, like, what Ava's deal is and why she has to be saved, they're kind of just like, oh, we'll help you after we get Janet out, though, so, so you can wait, but, like, that's, <laughs> that's kind of shitty, um, she really comes off as this sympathetic villain, because she isn't really a villain, like, what she's, it's that perfect gray area where what she's doing is making things harder for the heroes, which, in their perspective, makes her the bad guy, but all she's trying to do is keep herself alive, and, and that's not really that evil, you know? Um, would be would she be a hero if she sacrificed herself? Maybe, but still, this isn't a, a, a clean-cut villain, um... I will say, I just wish she had more to her, because she, she, she comes off a little crazy and a little desperate, and they actually, they actually kind of tackle that trope, um, in a funny way, where, like, Scott and the Pims get away, and Ava's, like, t talking to Bill, and she's like, well, Scott Lang has a daughter, if we, like, kidnap the daughter, and he's like, no, that's not what we do, we're not gonna kidnap someone, that's, that's going too far, and she's like, oh, okay, fine, we'll do something else, like, they reference the fact that they could take that daughter hostage, which is something they do in all these kind of movies, um, but they don't do it. They just reference that they could and that they shouldn't, and I, I'm, I'm kind of glad about that, because again, it's very stereotypical to kidnap someone's kid as a villain. Um, you could have had a very different outcome for this film if they did that. Uh, and again, it would have further involved Cassie. In fact, like that kind of would have, that almost would have helped in a weird way, because, um, jumping a bit ahead here, um, apparently a teenage girl, a teenage actress has been cast for Cassie Lang as, like, a 16-year-old, so we're either gonna get a time jump, or Cassie's gonna be aged up, or something, uh, point is, Cassie's gonna get older, which is gonna allow her to become a superhero in the future, because uh, she's a superhero in the comics, but if she had been kidnapped by Ghost and got involved with the Quantum Realm in some weird way, she could have been trapped there for six years and come back a teenager, for all we know. But again, we don't we don't know how they're going to age up Cassie, so that's not what we're going to talk about. Um, I guess the main thing I kind of want to talk about with, with Ava is that I saw a theory online before the movie came out that Ava, a.k.a. Ghost, was going to be like the illegitimate daughter of Janet Van Dyne and Bill Foster, and that, like, she and Bill had a relationship before she, like, met Hank or got with Hank, and their daughter kind of ended up, like, in childcare or an orphanage, or they, they passed her off on their friend Elias Starr to, like, look after her, and that's why she was raised thinking that she was Elias's daughter. Um, I kind of wish that's what they did, because, like, because throughout this film, there's a real, and they, they kind of repeated this with the first movie, but, like, there's a real sense of fathers and daughters in this movie, and, like, parentage in general, because, of course, you got Scott and his daughter. You got Hank Pym and Hope and, and, and her... Oh, my God. Hank Pym and his daughter, Hope. But then you also have, like, Janet and, like, her family looking for her. And then you have Ava, who kind of views Bill Foster as, like, a foster father. Oh, jeez, that's perfect. Bill Foster father. Um, <laughs> and you know, her, her parents were also killed by the technology that Hank Pym is, like, frequently control like, creating and, and manipulating and stuff, so 
she has a vendetta against him, and that you know gets her in a in a fight with um, with Hope. And so there's a lot of like cross lines here, and you know if if Ava was the daughter of Janet and Bill, and either she didn't know or she did know, um, like it wouldn't affect her plotline this movie too much because again she's just trying to stay alive. <laughs> um, but it would have been a, kind of more perfect because. You know, the first time we see Ghost, she's getting in a fight with, uh, with Hope. And, you know, if, if, you know, she was the daughter of, of Janet and Bill, it would have been like fighting her sister, or her half-sister. Um, and it would have made it more prevalent that Ghost was the villain of the movie, because she's a female villain, and we have Wasp, who's a new female hero. And, like, they would have kind of paralleled the same way that, like, say, like, Scott and Darren Cross did in the first movie. Um, and it also would have helped because, again, part of Ghost's plan was to drain the quantum energy out of Janet, even if it killed her. But, like, imagine how stronger of a, of a plot that would be if either she knew that Janet was her mother or that she didn't know Janet was her mother and she almost kills her, her biological mother. Like, that would have been really strong. It would have better established her relationship with the Pym family. Because, like, by itself, she's only in association with Pym because of the science stuff that was replicated. But if it had turned out she was a daughter from a previous relationship, um, and she kind of reunited with Janet, either not knowing or knowing, it would have been more special because, like, Janet, you know, she's expecting to see her daughter and Hank Pym when she gets out of the quantum realm, but then she sees this kid that she had with Bill, and it brings back all these other emotions, and it makes it so Janet isn't just, like, a prize to be won. Like, Janet isn't just this, like, perfect angel who was locked away, and we can't have her back now. Um, it, it actually makes her character kind of dirty, and actually reminds you that, yeah... She's the trophy at the, at the end of this movie, and she's, like, this perfect mother and this perfect wife, and she made this ultimate heroic sacrifice, but she still made a mistake. And, and in a way, it reflects off Hank, because Hank spent most of his life being egotistical and, like, holding his science away from other people, and that was kind of his flaw. And now, every day of his life, after Janet disappeared, he's been trying to make up for it, and like, perfect this technology and stuff. So, like, I'm saying that if Ghost was the daughter of Janet and Bill Foster, it would have made... It would have made the narrative of her fighting Hope uh, stronger. It would have made Janet a more three-dimensional character who was flawed at one point in her life, who isn't just perfect, and we have her back now. Um... It would make you actually sympathize for Hank a bit more, and it would make Bill a bit more of an interesting character, because, again, he would know that this girl is uh, his daughter, but, like, he also has a rivalry with Hank, and, again, that that would have been explained further if it's like, oh, it's not just technology, it's the fact that Hank took his girlfriend and, like, had a daughter with her, and, like, the daughter that he had with Janet was, like, adopted by the, the, uh, by the Star family, and now, and we see how that turns out, and now she has powers and stuff, like, it just would have elevated so many character interactions to a point, and it would have, like, 
highlighted and strengthened the father-daughter, like, like, family element of this film. Um, the only reason I can see them not doing that is because they want to keep Janet, like, this perfect character. But, again, like, I, I feel like if they did that, people would be giving this movie a lot more credit, whereas now Ant-Man and the Wasp is just a decent Marvel movie. Yeah, Ant-Man and the Wasp, it's a good movie. I'm not, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's, it's a good movie. It's fun. Um, you know, if I was asked to see it a second time, I definitely would. Um, I do not think it's necessarily, like, required viewing, unless, unless the Quantum Realm plays a big part in Avengers 4, then maybe it's required. Um, but even then, they established the Quantum Realm in the first Ant-Man movie. Um, but it's good. You know, uh... <laughs> again, with the whole parentage thing, they could have changed that to really kind of elevate it. Um, but as it stands now, it's fun, it's funny, has really good action, uh, and the characters are all very enjoyable. It For me, it's a solid B+. And, you know, that's that's a bit lower than Marvel movies have been getting for me recently. Like, between Black Panther and Thor Ragnarok and Infinity War, like, they've just been hitting all the marks. Um, Ant-Man and Wasp is just kind of like... Not bad, but it, like it's a passing grade for Marvel. I think like it's not a huge flop. It's not Iron Fist in any way, um, but it passes. You know, it passes a Marvel movie. It is fun. It does the it does the job of a Marvel movie. It just doesn't make you overthink, and it doesn't make you like dis like like heavily discuss characters and stuff uh, the same way the previous films do. Uh, I will say, you know things I would look forward to for a third Ant-Man movie. I've been talking about this forever. Like, if you're going to make Cassie a teenager, make her stature like she is in the comics, like when she was with the Young Avengers. That way, the third movie could be like Ant-Man and Stature. And it's like a father-daughter superhero movie. That would be fucking phenomenal. I would love, like, I would love a father-daughter superhero movie, especially with those two. Um, that would be incredible. Uh... What else? You you could also, again, with Cassie becoming a teen... It, it, again, I'm only saying this because it might happen, because they've cast an older actress. Um, if Cassie's going to be a teenager, you could also do a Young Avengers movie later down the road. Um, but in terms of a third Ant-Man movie, I've also been thinking about incorporating a villain called uh, Crossfire, who's supposed to be the, I think, older brother of Darren Cross who becomes kind of like a deadshot assassin type character. And he, he looks like he works for like the Red Cross, but that's just his costume. <laughs> um, and and Crossfire, is, Crossfire is only cool because he specifically is a, a hired assassin, a hired gun, who can specialize in shooting like small targets. So he can make a fun like side villain in the next one. Uh, he could personally go after Ant-Man because of what happened to Darren Cross. Or he could just get paid by Darren's employees to go hunt down Ant-Man. Like, that would just be fun because it's, it's a way to reuse the Darren Cross character without bringing him back. Just, like, bring up the fact that he has, like, a cool... He has a cool brother who's, like, an assassin. Like, I could definitely... I know Jason Statham doesn't want to do superhero movies. But if he's not going to be Bullseye, can, can we get him as, like, as Crossfire? I'd be down for that. I'd be really down for that. Um, plus he's bald like Darren Cross was. Uh, what's the other thing? Oh, uh, Eric O'Grady is another character I kind of want to see in the third one. In the first anime movie, 
one of the shield slash Hydra guys gets away with some pin particles, it would be really cool if, like, Hydra has their own Ant-Man, and it's Eric O'Grady. Because Eric O'Grady, if you've never heard of him, uh, we did a combo fay on the Irredeemable, Irredeemable Ant-Man, which is the character I'm talking about right now, uh, and he would just be a perfect foil for, for Scott Lang, because cause Eric O'Grady is, like a, like, a... He's a government agent, but he's completely irresponsible with his powers. Like, he'll... He'll shrink down and watch a girl shower, or he'll like, uh, he'll he's like a real scumbag. Like he'll he'll make girls pay for like dinner with him, and then he'll try to like sleep with them. Like he's a real asshole, and I think having an asshole like him who's in a government position and is also Ant Man reflected onto Scott Lang, who's like this, like, uh, the schlubby character who's just trying to be a dad, former criminal. He's, he want he's a superhero, like. That is a perfect clash of characters. Like, complete douchebag who does it on purpose because he's an asshole versus, like, former like former criminal who's trying to do right by his daughter. Like, those two would tear each other apart. And if you're not going to do Ant-Man in stature, you do Ant-Man versus Ant-Man. Like, that would be awesome. And, and then you can have Hank Pym turn into Giant Man or something. Like, that'd be fun. Um, the other thing that we, we kind of have to cover is the fact that, like, the after credit scene, we haven't seen it. Make sure you see it till the end. Uh, Ant-Man goes into the quantum realm to recover some, like, quantum energy for Ghost. And, uh, what is it? The Pym family, Hope, Hank, and Janet are on the other, like, side of the portal, ready to pull him back out of it. Um, but while he's in there, we zoom back out, and the Pym family has been wiped out by Thanos' uh, Infinity Gauntlet snap of the finger. Like, they have been rezzed. <laughs> and so... Now, the Pym family's gone, so we're not getting a Wasp in the next movie. And Ant-Man is stuck in the Quantum Realm until, assumably, Avengers 4, where maybe he'll get out, maybe he'll come out with time travel powers, we can do the time travel plot we all know is going to happen. Uh, we don't know. But all this basically confirms is that when we get to Avengers 4, Ant-Man's going to play a big part in how that plot goes. And the Quantum Realm might play a really big part in how Avengers 4 goes. So, I'm really looking forward to that, especially because if Wasp was alive, she would kind of just take the thunder of Ant-Man. Um, so, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Avengers 4 utilizes Ant-Man in the Quantum Realm and how that kind of happens. And then, really looking forward to seeing how Infinity War affects the next Ant-Man movie. Uh, I, I would really like Peyton Reed to stay on these movies because it's kind of his trilogy by this point. Uh, so, I'm looking forward to how this goes. But yeah, Ant-Man and the Wasp... Go see it. I don't... <laughs> you can see it twice if you want. I wouldn't recommend seeing it three times. Uh, again, not hugely required. If you know what happens in the, in the end credit scene, then you should be good for Infinity War when that rolls around. Or, sorry, uh, Avengers 4 when that rolls around. Uh, but, yeah, decent movie. It's not going to blow your mind, uh, but it's great. Go see it. <laughs> and uh, thank you for listening so much. Go to panwood.pob.com, panwood.blossom.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, so you can check us out there. And uh, thanks for listening.